Together this many days in silence, there's an energy, a power, a force of goodness here, and we are all drinking from it, partaking of it. It's a field of purity, purification, and goodness, a gift to ourselves and a gift to the world, a gift to each other. Even if we don't know each other, it's wonderful that we can be so generous. And this generosity is a basis for further development. Within a couple of days, you'll be somewhere else, and hopefully you'll be able to sustain it. And how do you do that? Tonight, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we develop our life in the monastery. Because some people think that we monastics escape the world. We're closed off, we're not connected, and we don't do very much. (laughs) And we just live in a little fantasy world. But imagine going to a place where you can't do what you want. There's a schedule. Like if you were to stay here for a year, how would that feel? Because it's a sanctuary with a schedule and silence and precepts and you can eat so much at a certain time and there's no dinner. We're, we're well cared for, very well cared for. In fact, modern monastics can be quite spoiled and we have to guard our sense doors and restrain ourselves from indulging in that exquisite care that people take of us. But there are times when we don't know who's bringing a meal, or there may be shortages of things, and we just make do with what we are given. It's a wonderful principle, because there is so much generosity that comes, then it's very hard to complain about it. How can you complain when people are taking care of you? It offers us a chance to feel what it feels like not to get what we want. And actually how very freeing that can be. Not to follow desire. Because the training that the world gives us is not only to follow desire, but to increase our desire. You're assaulted from all sides. But the difference is that in the monastery, the assault 
we can see is very much coming from within. And it's very difficult for us to blame anyone. Of course we do. If the mind is untrained, we go to blaming. So how to let go of blame? How to let go of blaming ourselves, blaming our bodies, our, our minds, our intelligence, our lack of it, our age, our gender, the way people treat us, the requisites we don't get, and what people say when they come or, what, or when they don't come, or if they come too often, if they stay too long. <laughs> we can't just shut the gate because we depend on our community to feed us. So all kinds of people come, even your spiritual companions. We can't choose them. But it's not about liking or disliking, because if all of us are trying to uphold the Dhamma and take refuge in truth, then our aspiration is so much more transcendent than our likes and dislikes. And so we start to look at our opinions and our judgments as just hindrance, because they're just ideas in the mind, they're concepts. And we learn to love. We may not like, but we love all who are there, striving. The untrained mind is going to likes and dislikes. But when we open our hearts and see the generosity of giving up so much of the world, to develop the heart and live in purity. So the holy life is not holy just by coming in the gate, but it's holy by bleeding, giving our energy, our strength, our sweat, blood, tears, all of it, to that which we truly treasure and that which we take refuge in. And if we trust this teaching and know that this is the way to protection, to real refuge, to find healing, then we can give that much. We have the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the containment, the commitment, the focus, the concentration, the care and attention to developing the mind and opening the heart to that which best supports the highest in us. So one of the things that the rules give us is a net. It's not an internet, but it's an internet, a tightly woven net. It's a really beautiful container. And we learn to stay away from the edge of it because then we would endanger ourselves like falling off a mountain if you get too close to the edge. So you stay really clear. Most of us don't indulge in coarse conduct or speech. And whatever kind of troubles we get into, they come from getting irritated, agitated, angry, and we can't use abusive language. And if we do, we have to talk about it. We have to confess. We have to say, oh, well, I've done this, so that there can be a purification process. But when we take responsibility for our speech and action in this way, it's like we keep on emptying the rubbish. We see this doesn't work. This is not something that keeps the community healthy. We talk about it. 
we forgive each other and we begin again. We can see that there's a disharmony happening and we need to talk. It's as if when you're learning how to play an instrument and you're not hitting the right notes, you practice and practice and practice till you're in alignment, till you're in harmony. The form, it holds us like the robe. We all wear the same kind of robe. But it's really to cool the senses. It's to cool from the outside and it soaks into us, this cooling. So the mind settles down in terms of external stimulations, restraining our choice. You get up in the morning and you wear what the Buddha wore. What a privilege. When I wake up in the morning and wear the robe, I feel this is like my skin. It's just such an inspiration to, even though I'm so clumsy and undeveloped on the inside, by trying to follow in the Buddha's footsteps to lift myself up day by day. And it takes lifetimes, maybe, but it is uplifting to walk in the footsteps of such a great being with all the supports that he has given us. This code of discipline that we use is called the Vinaya. And Vinaya means it's like the victory over the defilements. It's like a war with Mara. But it's not a violent one. It's more like just opening your eyes and being able to see through the mirror of your spiritual companions. It doesn't feel right to have judgment about each other when we all are in the same kind of boat. This human journey is just like being out on the ocean in a little boat with big waves in a storm. And we get sick and we get grumpy and we get scared and we get upset and we want to run away. But the Vinaya holds us in the container and we develop trust for that container. We see that when we stick to it, so years ago when I was living in England, naturally there were some people that it was easier to be with and others not so easy. But I always had to sit next to the same person. And some days I didn't want to sit next to that person. But I had to make peace with what was going in my heart so that I wouldn't harm her with my bad energy. So when you live in community, whatever someone is experiencing, the lowest common denominator, we all kind of go down with that and try to raise it somehow. We feel it, we have empathy for it, and we practice metta. Metta is not separate from this practice. Karuna, compassion, is not separate from this practice. Mentally, we might become alienated from it, but we have to learn how to return to that. When you're in prison, what is a prison? Something that you don't want to feel becomes a prison. So why is it that when we're in the darkness, we don't switch on a light? And when we feel angry... We don't turn to that which can move the anger out, such as forgiveness or opening the heart 
to whatever has made us angry so that we can get out of the darkness, get out of jail. That's a form of generosity. And it's a way of conquering the defilements. We learn that little by little, but when you're in a container like this and you have to look at your mind day in and day out, you start to see how the process of defilement works on the mind and how we can slowly peel it away. And then when we learn to do this in these good conditions, we have a chance when we go back into the world to learn how to do it at a faster pace in not such good conditions. When people might be shouting, slamming doors, stealing from us or abusing us. There's a wonderful example in the suttas where many of you are familiar with this story. A Brahmin comes to the Buddha and he abuses him. He basically insults him. But the Buddha is unmoved by his angry words. And the Brahmin is perplexed. And he says, Venerable Sir, I abuse you, I slander you, I slight you, and you sit there looking bright and composed. How is that? And the Buddha says to him, If you were to set out a feast and invite a lot of people to come and eat it, and they didn't eat, to whom would the food belong? Oh, well, it belongs to me. That's right. So this man brought so much anger to the Buddha, and the Buddha didn't chew on it. He didn't eat it. He remained equanimous. And equanimity is the consummation of metta, karuna, mudita. That's upeka. It grows as we develop those qualities. So it's very important for us to learn to see our anger, to be able to see it more and more as it arises, or in the middle when it's arisen, or after it's arisen. And we develop that skill little by little. We first have to learn what is anger, what is unwholesome, what is taking our equanimity away, what is emptying out our mindfulness, our wisdom, our ability to stay present. What is defeating us? And in the monastic life, because we live in such a simple way with like-minded Kalyanamita, beautiful spiritual friends, they support this process in us. We support it in each other and we act as mirrors for each other. See, this is what you're doing. You can see in somebody's face when you've said something wrong or upsetting or harmful. You can see it immediately and then you have to live together. And we're trying to develop this beautiful path of holiness. So we have to look at our own face in the eyes of our companions. And we're always visible. Nothing is hidden. So this is a wonderful gift. And then if we're in a prison, we help each other get out of it through forgiveness, through loving kindness, through compassion. This process is quite precious, as painful as it might be. And we have to look so closely to be able to see these things. So in daily life, in worldly life, 
There are many more distractions, entertainments, sense pleasures, and we can get lost in those. So we come on retreat, we develop such a skill to see where the mind is, what is the weather in the mind, and then we go back in the world and kind of lose that connection, lose that skill, it gets withered away. Then it's harder to see when greed is overtaking the mind. We can't make wise choices when the mind is filled with greed, hatred, and delusion. So how can we be generous to ourselves? We have to come back to cultivating true refuge and protecting ourselves from the insults and assaults of the world every day and make enough time to look more closely at all our defilements so that we can overcome them. And it takes quite a while to change habits. But just as you have this program where you can take a photograph and you can enlarge it, and when you enlarge it very, very much, you no longer see all the contours of the person's face anymore. All you see are many little pixels. And you can color them in and do things to them to change the way that person looks. You can put on a mustache. or What this tells us is that through the lens of mindfulness and clear attention, precise attention and understanding, wisely seeing and wisely knowing the pixel nature of the mind, we can get so familiar with our anger that we can see that it's actually empty. There's nothing there. It's just hot air. And we can enlarge it so much that it no longer has any substance. And at that moment, we can turn to metta. As soon as we notice the three characteristics of our angry moods or our bitterness, our resentments, our lack of forgiveness, and we study them that closely that we see their true insubstantial nature. We don't have computers to study our anger, but we have the computer of our mind. And that's what this practice of present moment awareness is. As soon as you're aware of a mood, a harmful mood, or an unworthy thought in the mind, we can mindfully pierce it with our very close attention and notice those three characteristics so that we blow that away. We really study it and see it for what it actually is. And so the face that we wear is also not what we are. And if we look in the mirror of the mind, by clarifying the mind and purifying it to such an extent that we have this, this level of clarity, then we see. And this whole project is about seeing things exactly as they are. And in that way, we let them go. That's the generosity that we give to ourselves. To be able to see in that way It's like looking at our minds through a microscope. But this microscopic sight takes a long time to develop. 
And we have to put on the lenses of the Dhamma to be able to see in this way. And then we can say that the Buddha is our true doctor because he teaches us how to see. We take off these glasses because they cannot help us to see within the heart, to see within the mind, to disassemble all the constituents of what we think we are, the way we dress ourselves up for each other. So in the monastery, we are wearing the robe, and in the robe, we are raw in front of each other. We are just as we are. There is no way to hide. And so we do become a mirror for each other. And we are able to let things go. We trust each other as spiritual friends. And if we trust the Buddha as our spiritual friend, then we pick up these tools that he has given us to help us see our minds so clearly that we begin to see the joy of seeing that truth of what we are and what we're not. So then we practice this chaga, with a generosity of non-ownership, giving ourselves to the Dhamma, not expecting anything. It's just a gift. It's a pure gift. That kind of commitment. And patinisaka is the relinquishing. It's abandoning anything that harms us in this process of learning how to see. The past is dead. We can't change it. The last moment is gone. We can't live it again. But here and now, we have life and we have awareness. So we practice abandoning what is unwholesome here and now and cultivating, bringing together all which supports that true ability to see what is impersonal, it's imperfect, and it's empty. It's absolutely empty. In that suffering of having to let go, it's painful at first because we're so habituated. There's a friction that makes us feel that the emptying is work. It's a labor. But it's the labor of leveling out. Just like when you build a house, if the house is crooked, it's not a true shelter. But if the elements are all in balance and we come to the present moment with real awareness, looking in the mirror of the mind and seeing our true face, that's the face of holiness. It has no person in it. It's just the truth. We're with the truth. That's awakened wisdom right there for one moment. And if we have awareness of our defilements, that awareness is not defiled. And that creates the freedom which lets us out of the jail of our anger, the prison of our discontent. We get out, we escape. And this is how the Four Noble Truths arise, through these kinds of generosity. That one is called muti. It means getting out of jail. But we have the key. It's in our hand and the door is open. As soon as awareness is there, as soon as we have right refuge, as soon as we see suffering, we know its origin, we know how to stop it by just present moment truly seeing 
awareness, abandoning, without any expectation, giving our hearts to the truth, the truth will set us free. If we can see. There's another form of giving, which is, it's giving up in a way that leaves space. When we give in this way, there's a spaciousness. There is a shelter in which we can sit and abide in that quality of goodwill, metta. Goodwill is in every wholesome mind state. And ill will is in every unwholesome mind state. So therefore, if we want to develop this loving kindness to the consummation of it, which leads to liberation, we develop metta and karuna and mudita, appreciative joy for others and for ourselves when, yes, we get a moment of clarity. Yes, the light goes on in the darkness. We feel that joy. It's the blameless happiness. It's absolutely pure. Then we're on the way to balancing. Like when you straighten the house, you have to use a level. So we have to level our hearts. We have to balance. Then we can use that as our true home, our true refuge, our true safety. We're living in hearts that are out of balance, out of sync. And we can tell when there's no harmony. But this instrument here, we can have victory over the defilements if we take these tools that our exalted, blessed doctor has given us and we use them in the sanctuary of our own homes, make that a safe place to practice in this way every single day. Live with people that support that. Make the conditions so that we can empty out the defilements and that leaves the space for non-fear, for non-harming, for non-ill will for those, the right ways of intending and inclining the mind, we can abide in safety. Not only that, we can abide in analeo, in emptiness. And that's the way a bird sits on a tree. Sometimes you see a bird sitting way up in a tree, and it's just, how does it do that? It It doesn't cling tightly. It's not squeezing the branch. It's just poised. Its claws are nicely wrapped around it, enough to withstand a storm. We shut the door when there's a wind. We fold our sails when there's a hurricane. We use the right footwear if we're climbing a steep slope. We use the tools we've been given to develop the Eightfold Noble Path the Four Noble Truths come to life in our practice. And that's the true refuge. So we sit in the the mind that is empty of impurity. And that is what the awakened mind is. No defilement. It is secure. It's totally balanced. It cannot be pierced, insulted, attacked like the Buddha by any angry words or unwholesome action, it's awakened that empty mind, consummate in metta, in karuna, in mudita, consummate in upeka. 
like my teacher in India, when he was attacked and shot, he looked at the man that had shot him and he said, you poor man, you're going to go to jail. He was bleeding, shot. Such compassion. So that kind of a mind is full of truth. It's in the presence of truth. This morning when I walked up from the Kuti, I could still catch a glimpse of the full moon. And I was reminded of the day that I was ordained, the full moon day, and I saw the spire of the Shwedagon Pagoda in Myanmar, in Yangon, rising in the sky of this full moon light, lit up with the lights in the darkness. And as I was looking at it, I realized, oh my, it's the full moon. Three weeks before, I had been to that temple and I had made a wish that I could become a nun. And I wanted to give dana to the temple in honor of that aspiration. So I went to the office and I said, what is the biggest dana that I can give? And the lady said, you can light the lights of the Shwedagon, which is like a village of temples, thousands of lights at night there. And I said, okay, when is the next moon? And she said, well, the next moon is taken. Okay, when is the moon after that? That's in three weeks. So I offered the dana for the lights on that day. And then I went back to my practice in the monastery. I was in a long retreat. And that was during the time when Sayadaw asked me if I had decided if I would take lifetime precepts. And I said, no. And he said, will you do it? And I said, yes. And he said, you be ready in three days. Well, three days was that night. And when I saw the lights of the Shwedagon, and I was in robes, and I saw the lights rising in the darkness towards that full moon, I realized that the lights, that was the dana that I had given. And it was just such a moment. That's the virtue that one stands on. That you can live this kind of a life based on an act of goodness, an act of kindness. When you reflect on it, when you see it in your mind, you have joy. You put on the robe of truth. You enlarge your heart. You minimize the personal, the identities, the faces that you, you've been wearing. They fall away so that there is no face. There's only the face of holiness, of wholeness. So I offer you that for your reflection tonight. Sadhu, sadhu.